You're listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell. Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry. Now you're very welcome to Stand Out with me, Ian O'Connell. I hope I find you well on this Wednesday evening. I hope you're all getting into the Christmas spirit and you're all being good on the, on the, on the good books for Santa and nobody's in the, the, the naughty books as they say because... Nobody wants that to be happening, so we're all in our, our best behaviour now as it gets closer and closer to the, the time of Christmas coming. And I hope all the all the young ones and the children out there are looking forward to Santa coming in the big the big night and everything's getting more real now, the elf and the shelves are out and everything, so I hope you're all looking forward to the big day because Christmas is certainly my favourite time of year and I, I can't wait for a time like a child at Christmas as they say. I'm delighted to say that my guest this week on Stand Out with myself, Ian O'Connell, is singer and songwriter Brian Kennedy. Sit back and enjoy the show. Brian, thanks so much for coming on today. Ian, I'm so delighted to speak to you because, you know, I don't get an opportunity to get to carry very often. So it's lovely to think that you and your listeners are kind of, you know, we're having the chat. Uh, although it feels like it's just you and me, but of course, I know it's Radio Carry too. So no, thanks for asking me. No, thank, thank you. And they're all... They're all delighted here in the office that, that you're able to to do it. Yeah, of course. Um, I like to bring all my guests kind of back to the the start of their their growing up and stuff. Do you wanna paint a picture of what was your childhood like growing up and were oh, you into goodness. sports and music and <laughs> you obviously don't know me very well if you think I got involved in sports, Ian. No sports at a young age, no? No, no the opposite. Well, you know, I was born in nineteen sixty-six in West Belfast. Uh, I suppose famously known as the Falls Road, or rather infamously known, you know, and probably one of the worst times in our political history all through the 70s and the 80s with, you know, all of the upheaval and the, the I suppose the hunger strikes in the 80s and internment in the 70s and really British occupation. You know, it's, it's so um, extraordinary to see the news now about Ukraine and seeing people fleeing their homes and all that. I mean, that's on a much smaller level. I'm familiar with having to, you know, having the army raid the house and us having to gather in the local school, seeing buildings blown up, seeing people shot dead in front of me, all those kinds of things. You know, that's that's the childhood that I had. And it, it's so far away from my life now that it it's almost like I'm speaking about somebody else, but I'm not. I'm speaking about my own childhood. Certainly there were, you know, GAA and sports and actually my own family were major marathon runners and, and all really? that. I was, a, I was a I was a sensitive enough kid, you know, I I was naturally drawn to music. I didn't feel uh, also growing up as, as a, a burgeoning gay child, there was yeah. a, a kind of an obvious separation going on between me and the family and me and the outside world, me and the Catholic Church, all of those things. So I always felt like an outsider on the inside. And um, there's an, an amazing film called Gods and Monsters, where he describes his uh, gay experience as being born, you know, a gazelle into a family of lions. Yeah. He was about to be devoured at any moment. And that's really how I felt. I nearly fell off my chair when I heard that, because that's how I felt. I felt like... You know, I, I felt endangered all the time. So somehow music got to me. Somehow I was able to sing. I don't know how or why. I never had any lessons really or anything like that. But I just was comforted by this kind of guiding light that was music in in that dark time. Was it um was it true? I remember reading that you were harmonizing with the the sirens uh, of ambulances. Absolutely. I, I, that's exactly what I used to do all the time. I mean 
you know, there wasn't that long ago that Mary McAleese got into trouble when she said that she described West Belfast as a, you know, as a ghetto. And she was absolutely correct about that, because certainly one of the things that we had to do was get in a queue at the end of the Falls Road. There was a big turnstile and a railings and everything. And you had to queue up at that turnstile, whatever the weather was. And then eventually when you got to the top of that queue, they'd say, where are you going? What time are you coming back at? What's your address? You know, all you know, all of that stuff. And only then when that was all radioed through back in the day before computers, you were allowed to go through a turnstile and join the rest of the city. And no other community had to do that in Belfast other than the Catholic West Belfast community that I grew up in. So it absolutely was getaways. And as you know, you know, the stigmatization of that and the idea that only you had to be questioned all the time. And then it, it really kind of wrecked your confidence. It wrecked your idea that you could just be, you know, move around freely. So certainly when I was standing in that queue, in I would be harmonizing with ambulances up and down. And there'd be a little argument, I suppose, psychologically to say that, you know, when you see a, a movie like The Sound of Music, let's say, where yeah. she says, whenever I feel afraid, I whistle a happy tune. I think whenever I felt afraid or uncomfortable, I would turn to music. I would, you know, a siren is usually the sign that something awful is happening or about to happen. And I would put a harmony on that siren. And so I suppose try and make it less scary. I think it was as simple and as childish as that. It's amazing to to hear from that point of view because a lot of yeah. people listening won't have any idea that that I know, was... I know, it's extraordinary. That it I was the reality. I mean, Ian, I still encounter people that have never been to Belfast, never been north. I was only there once. I was up, um, I went to the, the Titanic experience and we, yeah. we, we went there and we looked around and stuff. But yeah, it's, um, that, did you love it? I loved it. I thought it was yeah. unbelievable to see like the, yeah. the background of it. And you know, yeah. you see the movie, the Titanic and everything, but it's only when you're, you're there, you say, wow, like it was actually kind of felt real when you were doing the tour. And it was, you know, that's the other amazing thing that there's so many great things about Belfast, about Northern Ireland. And that's one of them that even though, of course, it was a very tragic thing, but it was certainly of its time. It was an incredible achievement for that harbour, those docks to produce that ship. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you, you at 18, you went to, to London, was it? Exactly. I was one of the many little Irish people who decided, look, you know, certainly Belfast became more and more difficult, more and more dangerous, especially, as I say, for a young gay person yeah. like myself, but also somebody who wanted to have a career, who wanted to do something, make something of their lives. And historically, my aunties, my uncles, people we'd heard about geographically, once they moved to London, literally things, you know, prospered, you got better at things. And the music industry, certainly the nearest one to us was London. Not Certainly, I, I've, I fantasized about going to America, but it just financially wasn't feasible, too, too complicated. Whereas if we were from Northern Ireland, um, it was easier just to literally jump on a plane or a boat and suddenly you're in London, you know, and that, it was a very exciting time. It was 1985. It was July 11th. And two days later, July 13th was Live Aid. So that's what was going on in London. Really? Yeah. So the whole world seemed to be watching where suddenly I was living for a much more uh, exciting reason. And that was Live Aid. The first time I saw U2 properly and, you know, Freddie Mercury and Queen and, you know, Sade and all these kind of amazing people. My uh, my favorite song by you is The Boxer. Do you know the... The line yeah. where I left my home, my family, I was no more than a boy. Was that inspired by from going to London? 
Well, see, that song uh, that that song resonates with me because it was written by Paul Simon from Simon and Garfunkel many, many, many years ago. And every time I heard that song, especially when I was in London, um, and apparently he wrote it when he lived in, in, in England himself, Paul Simon. Yeah, really? There's yeah. There's something about that song that really resonates with me. It's about resilience. It's about survival against all the odds. And the idea that, you know, the notion that really within all of us, maybe there's there's a kind of a fighter, a boxer, somebody who will ultimately, you know, fight for what they believe in. So I love the message of that song, and I love that you love the my version of it. Yeah, that's my one of my favourite songs um, by you. And I was at the, I don't know if you remember, you were, we met actually down in St. Brendan's College. You were with Liam O'Connor doing the, yeah. the, the concert in the chapel. Exactly. And, well, I'm doing that again this weekend, but in Liskennet in, in West Limerick with him in this equestrian, uh, it's an amazing equestrian therapy centre down there. So um, I'll say a big hello to Liam for you, will I? Do do say, say hello to my great friends with um with yeah. O'Sheen and the the family. Yes. So so, so give give him my my regards and you meet him. I certainly will. When you um when you got over to London, you used to sing down in the the underground outside the, yeah. the Minion Theatre, did you? Yeah, I was a busker. Um, I did a wee bit of busking in Belfast, but mainly I started it in uh right at the underground, um, Tottenham Court Road. Uh, and the entrance was as you went up the steps, you'd be at the Dominion Theatre. So I'm sure lots of people out there listening can picture that. Yeah, that was a hairy experience. Sometimes it was good, but, you know, there were a lot of skinhead gangs around, lots of people who, you know, being Irish and being Northern Irish at that time in history in England was a very dangerous thing. Different time, was wasn't it? Yeah, there was a lot of conflict going on. There were lots of bombing campaigns, all kinds of things. And, you know, if you opened your mouth in the wrong part of town, you were in big trouble. You know, I had people punch me, I had people slap me, spit at me, things like that, just because I had a Northern Irish accent. And I got detained at the airport a lot. When I when I first started making, you know, forays into my career and I was traveling back and forth, my previous address was the Falls Road, you see. So, of course, the security people would be like, well, what are you doing here? And I'm going, well, I'm trying to make a better life for myself. But they yeah. were convinced that I was up to no good and... I would be detained sometimes for hours at the airport. And then it was great joy when I could finally, you know, pull a CD out of my bag and say, look, that's me. I'm a singer. That's why I'm here. But that took a while to get going. Must have been some feeling saying I'm more yeah. than my address kind of ma yeah. makes me out to be well, because people, when they hear the exactly. Falls Road, it brings I them know. back to that. Yeah, exactly right. And thank God things are changing. You know, these days, the Falls Road is a multicultural spot. It's really close to the city centre. Loads of Spanish people living there and Polish people and all of that. And it's just not the same as it was. And also, bizarrely, most bizarrely, it's a tourist destination. You can get yeah. into a taxi and they'll take you around and show you the bullet holes of all these different places that I, my childhood is a tourist destination. It's extraordinary. And it's great that times have have changed. And yeah. moving on, when you were you were discovered by Simon Fuller, a manager, when you yeah. were when you were what what how far into your career was well, that? Well, at the very beginning, I was nineteen years old. You know, and he heard me. Uh, he'd heard that I'd been singing with a f friends of ours called the Adventures. Um, and then he sent a few ladies along from the office. They came back, and then he called me one day and just said, "Look, I've heard." too much about you to ignore. I'll never forget that sentence. And he asked for a meeting. I went in to see him into his offices in Battersea and I sang for him in his office with my guitar, thinking that's that, that's what you did. 
and and he was like right let's start working together and yeah and as you know he went on to discover the Spice Girls and Annie Lennox and S Club 7 and all these people um, but certainly for me it was right at the beginning of my career and a, a wonderful great move I mean without him I wouldn't have achieved anywhere near the success probably who knows and yeah so but he managed me for 13 years but it all came to a natural end I moved to New York to be in Riverdance I went on the road to Van Morrison for six years I mean there's so many strands to it now it's extraordinary and um, the story was um I think it was on the late late um it was told but do you want to just say it for the listeners the story when Una Healy showed up with the guitar to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, we were auditioning singers for Eurovision. I was about to perform in Eurovision for Ireland in 2006, this was. And we were, you know, we set up a room. People came along for auditions. And in walked Una Healy, who at that time, you know, was she was a working musician, all of that. Aside from how beautiful she is, she's obviously a very beautiful young woman. But she walked in with her guitar, played us a tune, you know, just amazing, um, and a, just an amazing presence, a great singer, wonderful guitar player. And we just thought, my God, she's nearly too good for us, really. You know, and so she joined us on that Eurovision journey. And of course, years later, she ended up in the Saturdays and now she's a solo artist and all that. So, yeah, that was a really a lovely, lovely moment when that happened. You just knew that she was so much more than um, just a kind of, a, a you know, a backup singer with me for that project you could tell there was something special there she seems to be a lovely woman as well personally doesn't she she is Ian she absolutely is and very funny woman very talented very generous and like I say super talented um talking of um guitars and stuff you were you're obviously a phenomenal guitar player am I am I phenomenal guitarist thanks very much I think you are in a way Brian oh thanks very much (laughs) um you were influenced by Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan a lot were you Um, well, Joni Mitchell, really. I mean, Bob Dylan, of course, I'm a fan of. But in terms of guitar playing, in terms of approach to songwriting and all that, it was always Joni. It's interesting that it's always been women. It's always been Kate Bush and, you know, Bonnie Raitt and people like that. But Joni was an artist for me that just absolutely unlocked a way for me to make guitar playing my own in terms of exploring her tunings. And I mean, without her her different tunings, I never would have written Hollow or Believe It or any of those songs on the first album. Even the way I do Carrick Fergus is, is to do with her tuning. Christopher Street, of course, that I then re-recorded with Boy George not that long ago, things like that. Those tunings would never have been explored had I not been uh, presented, you know, with the Joni Mitchell recordings and the idea that she just made them up herself. And I used, uh, it's called Open D, for all your listeners at home. So it's D, A, D, F, sharp, A, D. That's the tuning I use the most um, when I'm when I'm writing and working on new things. And I have Joni Mitchell to thank for that. And I ended up touring with her in 1998 with Van Morrison and Bob Dylan. So that was a great, great thrill. That was the, the Blues and Soul tour. The Blues and Soul Review, exactly. And review. Yeah, it was an amazing time. Do you know the way you were saying there about the the tune of the guitar, just out of curiosity, do you, when you're writing a song, do you focus on the lyrics and words first or the kind of musical and the background track? Sometimes if I have a title that I like, that's a good start. Sometimes that happens. But most of the time it really is a bit of kind of deep sea diving. You know, I'll just keep diving into it. And there's lots of little recordings on my phone of me singing rubbish, really singing sounds rather than words along with a few little kind of, if I've got a nice little couple of chords, that's a good start too. It's, it's really like sculpture. You know, you just start off with something 
with no shape and no size to it. And then if you just sculpt away correctly, you come back to it and suddenly you have something that has a nice shape to it. And if you're lucky, it might turn into something beautiful that you love and that you're proud of, you know. So, yeah, it's a lot of um, they say, what do they say? Um, you know, inspiration and perspiration. You know, it's you just have to stay with those two ideas. Absolutely. Um, you saying you raised me up. Um, it. It, it uh, was that um, it got in a, a top five at uh, George Best funeral, wasn't it? Yeah, so I had recorded that with Secret Garden probably now 20 years ago, 2002 or something. And and it was an unknown song then. It was Secret Garden who had won the Eurovision. And they'd asked me, would I come and sing this song? And I did. And and I remember thinking, God, that's a lovely song. Very, kind of like a tribute to Danny Boy in its essence. Yeah. Um, and so that was that. And then I started performing it with them in Norway. And it, it started to become a big hit in Norway for us there. And then, of course, you know, our industry is so cutthroat. Everything kind of went upside down and sideways and backwards and everything else. And by the time, you know, things were had calmed down, it had been sent into the world. Josh Groban had heard it in a taxi. Uh, he was in Dublin and he heard me singing it on the radio. And then he he brought it back to America with him. His producer, David Foster, had been sent it for him, my version of it, things like that. And just it was one of those songs, you know, it's interesting because it's only of this century. It's not a very old song at all, but it seems like it's been with us forever. And I'm just so proud to have it. So when Georgie Best um, died, his family wanted to do a celebration of his life. And they asked me, would I sing uh, a couple of things? Raise Me Up, of course. And then uh, Vincent, uh, which apparently was one of Georgie's favorite songs. What did that mean to you to be asked to, to do it? Because that was obviously was, a huge honour. It was extraordinary to be considered in that way. Um, yeah, it's always, I always feel very moved when anything happens from my hometown, you know, given that the, the journey had been so difficult at the beginning to then be be um, considered an important voice, an important voice of the soundtrack of that city. Um, and especially the celebration of somebody so amazing like Georgie Best. Like I would have hung out a little bit with Georgie and Van Morrison in Manchester back in the day when when Georgie would come um, to the concerts and then to sit beside he and Van and hear them talk about their Belfast from the 50s and all of that was really a great privilege for me. Um, what was, I I tried to stay away from talking about it with, with, um, with people in interviews, but COVID and lockdown, that was obviously the whole industry kind of yeah. shut down all of a sudden. You were kind of going live on Facebook at eight o'clock fortnightly. What yes. was what kind of an impact did that have on on you and obviously all other kind of people in the the entertainment business? Did you find that kind of a few good things came out of us with music wise? Well, I mean it was kind of like practice retirement. Yeah. You know, in the sense that this is what it's like to have nothing to do, to have nowhere to go. And and also, as you know, I had some health complications. I had a massive yeah. heart attack in the middle of it all. But we were we decided. Uh, my friends Richard and Lar put a proposal together that we'd maybe do one or two little Facebook Live things, and they just snowballed into these amazing fortnightly things. We had a couple of hundred thousand people watch us and all of that, and I loved it because we did a different set every time we did something, and it was a really exciting uh, thing to do. But I suppose more than ever, Ian, it made me realize and understand that I wanted to be a singer more than ever. Yeah. You know, even when we're absolutely down on our luck and we're not earning any money, we're not able to go anywhere, I still could not help myself 
but sing and, and re record and reach out to people and communicate. And so, yeah, it just really underpinned my desire to be a singer, the, the lockdown. And thank goodness we are out of it now and I'm singing up a storm everywhere. How um, how important is, um, this obviously gets a bad rap sometimes, social media and stuff, but how how yeah. important and, and handy is it for exposure for like a music artist? Well, I mean, look, I, I think it was a lifeline for a lot of people because you couldn't spend any time with your friends or your family and whatever version of that you are connected to. And so suddenly you could be sitting in your little living room or your whatever room and you you could be communicating with people around the world. And it really I think it was an extraordinary lifeline for for every everyone involved. If you were lucky enough to have Wi-Fi and a, a phone or a tablet or a computer, um, I think we really sometimes underestimate um, the Internet. And that's uh, I think it showed us its power in that sense. It was wonderful. Absolutely. Um, tell me a bit about the the album Christmassy with the kind of yeah. old and, and new Christmas songs. How did that yeah. come about? Well, you know, I've always been kind of anti-Christmas. I've never been somebody who's been that excited about it. And I find it overwhelming sometimes. I'm not, um, you know, it's not lost on me that a lot of people feel very isolated at that time of year. And they don't have a picture-perfect postcard family to be involved in and all of that. So, and again, as a young gay person, it's often a time when you do feel outside of your family. There were ye many years that I, when, when I left home when I was 18, I never went home again for Christmas ever. Um, really? I, yes. And I, I still, I still haven't, you know? So, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that you either are, you know, because back in the day before people got really comfortable with the idea of being gay and having a gay child, it was seen as something to be very sad about and something to be very worried about and all of that. So in order to stave off questions about, so if you've got a girlfriend and when are you bringing a girlfriend home and, you know, yeah. all of that, just, ugh, you know, it's just kind of crazy, you know. I, so now um, in terms of Christmassy, so I always had very negative connotations about Christmas. And now I thought to myself, look, actually, when all is said and done, it's the music that makes me, you know, like Christmas. I love hearing Ella Fitzgerald. I love hearing Bing Crosby. I love hearing, you know, those kind of people. And I thought, you know what? I'm I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to put myself in an uncomfortable position and record some Christmas songs and see how it goes. And I'm so glad that I did. And um, like you said, Christmas when you are abroad and stuff in yeah. London, and you didn't when you came back. How did you find in London? I meant to ask you this at the start. Living in London at such a a young age, did you kind of just survive the only way you could, or what was it like for a young person? Well, see, I think in, in in a way, I was I was um for, I was fortunate in in one way, and that having come from such a war zone and such a difficult place. Anything else was really a step up, even though it was very difficult. And we were living in squats and we were starving a lot and having to negotiate a major unfamiliar city and all of that. But uh, we were so brave. You know, the thing that I really think about when I when I look back on that time, I just think, God, I was so brave to even attempt it, you know, at such an early age. But again, I had that compulsion, that idea that I just wanted to sing. I wanted to maybe make a record. I wanted to do some gigs. And London seemed to be the nearest and dearest place. When you were busking in um in Belfast back then, it, yeah. it probably wasn't as as common. Like you, you wouldn't see people like yeah, like Grafton Street. Well, also as well, they would say to you in the Dole office. So, what do you want to do for a living? And I'd say, well, I want to be a singer. And they'd go, no, but what do you want to do for a living? 
like everybody wants to be a singer now but back in yeah. the day it was unheard of and people they look at you like you were there was something wrong with you when you said no i want to be a singer moving on you said there like you had a a few health complications and stuff in yeah. 2016 your your life obviously changed in a massive way and you got some yeah. some some news that people yeah. are hearing and nobody deserves to hear how did you um cope with that when you heard it first and what was your experience like getting the diagnosis it was very difficult uh, my my eldest brother and i were both diagnosed with cancer in the same year 2016 he unfortunately died after only five months so that was very tragic yeah pancreatic I, cancer brian wasn't that he had pancreatic which is very difficult to treat uh, you know and uh, some people would say that by the time you discover you have it it's too late you know there are very few people who survive it chris ria interestingly enough i've discovered had uh pancreatic cancer and he's still with us he's still alive he's still doing it but um yeah so i went on a journey with it i I was very worried, obviously very scared, wanted to try and find a way through it without having to have the life-changing stoma surgery that I ended up having two years later. But it was a lifesaver. I'm so glad I did that. And I've just had my fourth year all clear two weeks ago. So that's very good. I just need five years and then we're out of the woods completely. And um, you were saying, was it on the, the six o'clock show there recently? You were, you were, I was watching you and you were saying, if you if you get the all clear next year, do you, do you have to go back then every year for for kind of checkups or is no, it that's the, that's the that's when they because right now I go back every year for checkups that's what I do yeah. every but when you get to five years they basically say we don't want to see you again you go off and get on with the rest of your life so um hopefully that day will come next year and all will be well so that's what I'm hoping for please God you were saying um when you got the the all clear this year that in one way you wanted to celebrate, but you, you yeah. didn't because you were oh, thinking of the others. It's bittersweet because I'm always thinking of other people who don't get good news. And we had a friend of ours who died very tragically only a couple of weeks ago, a beautiful woman called Gronya Carr from Gortahork in Donegal. And she had had a journey as well for a bunch of years in and out of situations with cancer. So it's not lost on me how lucky, incredibly lucky I am with this. Did you find music one way? But it was like, I suppose you could say was it kind of like your your therapy when you were sick? Well, it's like medicine. I'd go further again and say it's therapy, certainly, but it's also medicine. It makes you feel good. It makes you think about other things other than yourself. And I wrote songs about it, like Child of War and Recovery and those kind of songs. I was able to channel uh, my energy into those brand new songs too. So, yeah, it was, it was a whole myriad of things, and it continues to be that. I mean, I'm looking forward to singing this weekend. I'm singing next week in Dublin, you know, and every gig is a step forward for me, is medicine for me. Everybody that goes through tough times in their lives, like, you know, obviously cancer and other kind of illnesses and stuff, yeah. did it affect you mentally or how did you, how did you? I could it not, I'm only, I'm only human, but it did. But I also am a very robust kind of fella and I was lucky to get the best treatment I could possibly get. And it's important to talk about these situations with other people and also understand that as much as there are people who are dying and everything, there's a lot more people surviving. One of the reasons that the waiting rooms in hospitals are so full is because people are surviving in greater numbers. So that's one of the things to think about. So, yes, I feel um, your mental health is a very important thing. And um, it's important to be realistic about it. Allow yourself to feel low, but also <clears throat> reach out to people if it's overwhelming.
Absolutely. Um, a few weeks ago, we obviously lost a, a massive person that we all got to know over the, the last few years in, in Vicky Feeden and how yeah. determined she was in yeah. her in her cancer journey. Yeah. Did you did you meet her any time? I met her many times. Um, we used to do this vitamin C IV treatment together before she was, uh, you know, b- before she became a public person. Um, I just chatted to her every two weeks and she was interested in music and all kinds of things. And our lovely husband was always with her and he'd go out and get us cups of tea and sandwiches. And we'd, you know, chat for a couple of hours sometimes or just maybe have a little sleep in the same. It was a, a kind of a row of seats that we would get our treatment in. So, yeah. And then suddenly one day there she is on TV being in the incredible warrior that she was, you know. Um, but she would always she was very, very pragmatic about it. She would say to me, of course, you should explore all kinds of alternative treatments and keep your eye on oncology, of course. So that's what I did. And like I say, unfortunately, she lost her battle. It's incredibly sad. And I feel a hundred times more uh, again, more fortunate that I'm still here, that I'm that I'm still healthy and that I'm moving forward. Absolutely. Um, do you think that men in general, because I, I think they do anyway, there's still a lot to be done for men to kind of open up about their own health. Yeah. Do you find that? I find it still, even in the younger generation, there seems to be these kind of invisible rules for genders that somehow if you're a man, you can't, it's still seen as a sign of weakness if you open up about something you're worried about. Um, I mean, I think things are changing for sure. Um, I think we just need more education about it. We need more people like me, like other men to come forward and say, look, you have to go and get checked. You have to go and, uh, you know, if, if something you feel something's not right, trust your instinct because your instinct is usually right in other areas of your life. Why wouldn't it be right in terms of your health and your body? So, yeah, I think things are changing, but very slowly. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, Ian, was because somebody will hear this interview and think to themselves, you know what? Maybe I should go and get checked myself. Maybe I should do something about that little bit of blood that's been happening when I go to the loo or whatever, you know. So hopefully what we do is we just keep educating people and keep getting them to go to the doctor, go to A&E if you're not feeling well, just seek help because it is there. And the sooner you get checked, oftentimes the the easier it is to treat and survive these cancers. Absolutely. And it's it's vital to keep giving out and pumping out that that message to the to the to the public. Um your new album, Folky, you pay kind of a tribute to Ooh. other other Ireland's kind of folk singers and stuff. Right. Do you want to tell me a bit about that? As- yeah, that started because of the pandemic, actually. I heard this song called I Wish I Had Someone to Love Me. Uh Barney McKenna from the Dubliners. And then of course later on I heard Imelda May sing it with the rest of them. And it really struck a chord with me. And I knew that certainly one of the other pandemics that we didn't talk about was loneliness and how yeah. people are incredibly disconnected and lonely. And again, how music is the is the thing that connects us all, really. Um, so that I then started to think about making a record of really old songs like that. Because I wish I had someone to love me is from 1920. So it's a hundred and something years old. And I loved how as a singer now for me in 2022, I wanted to bring my own kind of temperature to songs. Some of the songs are very well known, like, you know, Paul Brady's Lakes of Punch a Train or yeah. songs like that. And then older songs that my friend Neil Martin had, had got me to learn called The Verdant Braze of Screen and Come All You Fair and Tender Ladies. So I just wanted to make it just became a really natural album. And then I thought, you know what I'll do? I'll dedicate each song to the person that I learned it from. So John Condon, of course, is Mary Dillon, who's Karen Dillon's sister. Um, yeah, so I um, 
I had an amazing time making that record. We made it very quickly, me and Billy Farrell, my producer, and it's my 17th album. And that's one of the things I'll be singing from when I do the gigs coming up, of course, with Christmassy. That's amazing. Achievement 17th al album, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, as I always say, fair play to me. <laughs> fair play. That's all. That's all you could say. Um, like we like we were saying there about mental and stuff, you've had your own with the, the cancer and the the heart obviously problem you had there during COVID. Yeah. That was yeah. obviously a huge scare. How um, Yeah, I mean it it was a, absolutely, yeah, it sort of nearly came out of nowhere. But when I think of it now, you know, as we know, Ian, hindsight is a great thing. I'd had lots of problems before that. I I, I, I mean, I'm very proactive. I went to A&E a couple of times. I got the scans. I got everything. Everybody assured me I was okay. I even had had a call from cardiology saying, we're aware that you've got this calcification in your main artery because of chemo and all this stuff. But um, it's nothing to worry about. And two weeks later, I had a massive heart attack. You know, so even professionals can get it wrong sometimes. And like I say, I just went with my instinct. I walked myself over to A&E during the night because I felt so bad. Go and away. Yeah, yeah. I walked over myself. Um, I don't live too far from St. James's Hospital. And they hooked me up to the machine and they said, oh, God, you're having a massive heart attack. And I knew I was. I knew something was wrong. I didn't know exactly what. And then the only thing that would fix it was a quadruple heart bypass surgery so that's what i ended up having that was last um that was last late june first of july and so it's a year and a half later i'd had to learn to walk again again for the third time in my life but yeah so you have to listen to your body and like i say i'm healing really well i'm pretty strong mentally as well because as as much as the, all of those things are incredible setbacks they're also, you know, they're not insurmountable. You can get past them like I have done. And I'm singing better than ever, I think. Brilliant. Absolutely. I couldn't, couldn't disagree with that in a way, in a way Brian. Um, before we go, I wanted to, to yeah. just, you gave a, a brilliant message there to, to people out there that to go oh. with their, their instinct and nobody, yeah. nobody knows their, their, their body more than themselves. That's right. So that's a, a, a great message to, to finish up on. Yes, so, I Brian, thanks so much for coming on now today, and I really, really enjoyed that chat. You were great, Ian. And, and listen, a big shout out to all your listeners on Radio Carry and beyond. I'm sure there were people listening from all around the world. So happy Christmas to you, to yours, your family, and to everybody listening at home. And I hope to see you soon in the new year. Um, if you're near, um, if you're near Liskennet in in County Limerick, certainly I'll be there on Sunday. But beyond that, just keep watching the website. Watch my website for details of upcoming gigs. And I hope to get to Kerry soon. That would be lovely. Absolutely. We'll welcome you with open arms. Thank you very much. Now, unfortunately, that's all we have time for tonight. I hope you all enjoyed the show and I appreciate you tuning in as always. A massive thanks to Brian Kennedy for coming on today and having a chat about his, his story from from where he all took off for his um his his music career and he's had a few tough roads in there with his cancer diagnosis and his heart attack and everything so a massive thanks to Brian for for coming on and and, and opening up to 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 me because it's not something that everybody would do on a, on an interview so thanks to Brian for coming in today if you've any questions or requests for next week's show you can contact me through my Instagram enoconnell321 or through my email address ioconnell at radiocarry.ie. Stay tuned into Radio Kerry because Brian Priestley is up next with That's Jazz. Stay tuned for another few minutes. We're going to close out the interview with a very special performance of Brian Kennedy singing 
Merry Christmas, everybody. I'll be back at the same time next Wednesday night from 8 to 9 p.m. And Merry Christmas, and I hope you're all looking forward to the big day. Until then, stay safe and mind yourself. Does he ride a red-nosed reindeer? Does a turn upon his sleigh? Do the fairies keep him sober for a day? So here is Merry Christmas, everybody's having fun. Does your granny always tell you that the old songs are the best? Then she's up and rock and rolling with the red. So here is Merry Christmas, everybody's having fun. listening to Stand Out with Ian O'Connell Wednesday evenings from 8pm here on Radio Kerry